I've been preaching since I was 16, and when I would get through preaching through the years, people would come and ask me questions. And some of the questions I would know the answers to, and others, the Bible just doesn't give us the answers. But one of the most prominent questions that I've been asked has to do with, will we be able to recognize people in heaven? Will we be able to find people in heaven? Will we still be the same people when we get to heaven? For instance, my father died last year. So would I know him? How could I, would I find him? Would I be able to experience life with him again? And so I understand how people think about that. And not even perhaps traditional Christians want to know about that. I'm giving away my age when I tell you this, but my favorite secular artist of all time is Eric Clapton. I've enjoyed him from when I was a 12-year-old, and he was with Cream all the way through his career. I love his guitarist, guitar work. But those of you who are my age or older or you're just into classic rock, many of you will know the story that Eric Clapton's son, Connor, fell to his death from, I believe, a 53rd-story window. And in that tragedy, Eric wrote, what is one of his most beautiful and yet one of his most poignant songs. We've done it several times here at New Spring. The song is called Tears in Heaven. And in Tears in Heaven, Eric asks the question, would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? In just that couplet, it's almost as if Eric Clapton has summed up the questions that we have in heaven. Would I know you if I saw you there? And how would it be? Would it be the same or would it be different? So many times I wished I could have 30 minutes with Eric because I'd like to tell him the answers to some of the questions that he's asking. And in a few moments, I'm gonna load you up with a whole lot of proofs and, and maybe some diversity of thought in regard to will we know people in heaven, but really there's one verse in the Bible that when we get right down to it, really should be enough for us. And I wanna give you that verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and it's the 12th verse. And yes, for those of you who like to study your Bibles, this is the love chapter of the Bible. Don't you find it interesting? That in the love chapter in the Bible, God answers the question, will we know people in heaven? I want to slow down and read this because I want us to absorb its meaning as we go through this. Paul says now, in other words, the life that you and I are living today, now we see things imperfectly. Now when people ask the question, will we know our loved ones in heaven, what's hinted at in that question is that perhaps in the afterlife, our knowledge will not be as complete as it is today. Certainly, we know our loved ones in this life. If we're asking the question, will we know them in the life to come, what we're hinting at is that somehow there may be a diminution or there may be a decline in our knowledge in the life to come. Paul tells us it's just the opposite. He said, now we see things imperfectly. Well, we tend to think we see things perfectly, but we really don't. And what a mistake we make when we begin to evaluate God just with what we know from this life or to evaluate anything for that matter. Paul said, we see things imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror. When you and I think about a cloudy mirror, we think about when we get out of the shower and all the steam is in the room and the mirror is all fogged up. But back in Paul's day, mirrors are made out of polished metal, polished brass. So consequently, and you may have polished metal surfaces in which you can see your reflection, but you wouldn't want to use that for a mirror because although you may be able to see your reflection, it's distorted. It's almost like a funhouse mirror. And that's what Paul was saying. He's saying, when we look at things to come, when we look at life, we see things imperfectly like a, a, a foggy mirror. He said, all that I know now is partial. Does that statement resonate with you the way it does with me? He's taking the sum total of all his knowledge, and he's saying it's partial. That's a really interesting statement. The word partial there means a piece. I never could put puzzles together. I don't have patience for it being ADD, but I've got friends who like to put together these puzzles with 500 or 1,000 pieces. 
Now, can you imagine taking just one piece of a puzzle, having never seen the whole, and with that one piece of the puzzle, trying to guess what the image would look like? But when you and I try to figure out life, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look at this one more time. All that I know now is one piece of the puzzle. I, I don't have this in my tech notes, but in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul would make this statement. He said, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. And you know how foolish we are when we try to judge somebody else because all we have is a piece. We only have a piece of what their situation is. We only have a piece of what we know about it. And we only have a piece of understanding how God feels about things. And so that's just interesting to me. Now, here's, here's the turning point. He said, but then, in other words, in the afterlife, I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Well, as I said, that ought to be enough for us because what, what the scriptures are really telling us is that the knowledge that we have down here is so partial and incomplete, and the knowledge that we will have in heaven is similar to the knowledge that God has of us today. Well, let's dig deeper for a few moments because we want to know, will we know people in the afterlife, and what will that knowledge be like? I'm going to give you about four illustrations from scripture and then when I get through with all four of them, we're going to take a subtotal of what we've learned or the inferences of these scriptures. Now, you're going to guess most of them as we go through them. But we'll, we'll get to the end and we'll talk about what we've learned. Situation one is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Jesus is telling a story. And in Jesus' story, there is a rich man who is not a believer. We talked about him the other day. He lived for his money. He lived for his clothes. He lived for luxury. He lived for status. He was not a believer. And then there was a street person named Lazarus who was lying outside his gate. Some friends dumped Lazarus at the gate of this rich man in hopes that he would do something to help him. In fact, so severe was Lazarus's situation that he was physically emaciated because he was covered with sores. But on top of that, he was hungry and he wanted the crumbs that fell from the table. Well, you've got lunch coming up and I kind of hate to tell you what that means with lunch coming up, but people back in those days didn't have napkins like we do. And they would have pieces of bread they would tear off and they would wipe their hands, their greasy hands on pieces of bread and throw them under the table for the dog's seat. And so when Lazarus asked for the crumbs that fell from the table, that's what he was asking for. He was basically asking for the scraps that people wiped their hands on. But the moment came when both men died. And that's where I want to pick up Jesus' story because our question is, what will we know about people in the afterlife? Read with me. In hell, where he, that's the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So that's our first story. We're asking the question, what will we know about people in the afterlife? Just let that percolate. The second is just a statement that Jesus made. When Jesus was on the earth, the religious elite were always ripping him because Jesus tried to explain that he was the son of God who came to save the world. And the religious elite were saying, no, you're a carpenter who comes from Nazareth. And so there was this constant conflict. And in response to that, Jesus made this statement. I want you to hear it because it's really important. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, if you put a period right there, what he could have inferred was, Back in his day, Abraham, according to the promises of God, looked forward in time to the point that Jesus was coming, and he was happy about it. Like you and I are happy about Jesus coming back. But Jesus didn't stop there. He threw in a phrase that changed everything. Watch it with me. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. Now think about that clause that Jesus put in there. And he saw it and was glad. 
I assure you Jesus' hearers knew exactly what he meant because their next comments were, you're not 50 years old yet, and how can you claim to have seen Abraham? They understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, Abraham was glad to see my day. He was there on the day when I said goodbye to everybody, and I stepped out of heaven and walked into Bethlehem. Jesus was saying, Abraham saw that day. Well, Abraham had lived almost a couple thousand years before that. And yet Jesus is saying, he saw the day when I came into the world. And now, one of my favorite stories. If you grew up in church as I did, or if you grew up going to Sunday school, you've probably heard of the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. That's a big term. Simply what it means is this. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain, Peter, James, and John. And while he's there, a couple of people show up. Let's read it. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as white as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses, circa 1450 B.C. I put that in. That's not in the Bible. And Elijah, circa 850 B.C. I just want you to know these two individuals are not contemporaneous with each other. So Jesus is up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, here comes Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And I love how Dr. Luke tells us what they were talking about. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I've always loved the sort of casual nature of this. You just sort of see Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking. And they say to Jesus, we really missed you up in heaven. Uh, when are you coming home? And Jesus is saying, well, I think my flight's in a few days. I would have liked to have heard that conversation, wouldn't you? All right. Now, the last situation I'll just give you as an example is Jesus, of course. Because after he died, he arose in the grave. And he appeared, as Scripture tells us, to over 500 people at one time. So what are the conclusions that we draw? I'm guessing most of you have already picked these up. But just, just to draw a subtitle here, what are the conclusions that we draw from these stories that we pull from Scripture? Here's the first one. We don't sleep in the ground. You know, sometimes we go back to the cemetery and we talk to our loved ones. And I understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's the last place that we remember their physical body being. But you and I know they're not there. We don't sleep in the ground. We don't, you know, there have been many teachings through the years that we, we're in the ground until the resurrection. Well, physically speaking, that might be true. But obviously, Elijah's not asleep. Moses isn't asleep. Lazarus is not asleep. The rich man in hell is not asleep. Jesus is not asleep. And Lazarus and on and on and on. So the thing of it is, we don't sleep in the ground. We don't fade to black. Instantly, instantly, the people who die are alive Somewhere. If you think about Jesus' statement to the thief on the cross, remember that he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. That takes me to the second conclusion. People are in locations. Next week we start a brand new series called Six Lessons from a Christmas Carol. And obviously I'm going to have to make the comment over and over that there's no such thing as ghosts. Because we'll even have ghosts in some of our, some of our videos. But you and I know that there are no, there are no such things as ghosts. Every once in a while, people will, I mean, this doesn't happen too often, but, you know, someone will say, oh, I think I have ghosts in my house. Would you come pray a prayer over my house? I mean, no, you don't have ghosts in your house. You have people with overactive imaginations. There's no such thing as ghosts. People don't stay around and haunt places. Listen to me. When you die, you're going someplace. You're either going to heaven with God or you're going to hell away from God, but you're going to a location. The people that we see in the afterlife are clearly someplace. They're in a location. They're not floating around. They're not haunting. They're not, you know, flying around. We are, we're all going somewhere. We're going to locations. Third thing, this is a big one. People are recognizable. And certainly, 
uh, this is proven to us because the people that we've seen in our stories, they all knew each other. Here's what's strange. People in hell recognize people in heaven. People who were living on the earth recognized people in the afterlife. Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah. So certainly people in heaven are going to recognize each other in the afterlife. Here's the fourth thing that we draw. We're still the same people. In, in Luke chapter 9, Moses was still Moses and Elijah was still Elijah. Now, we're different. The Bible says they were glorious to see. So clearly, you know, we're not going to be in an inferior state when we're in the life to come. But we're still who we are. You know, my, my dad is still my dad. He's not a dolphin or a squirrel or a breeze. My dad is still my dad. And guys, listen, at the risk of offending someone, and Lord knows I don't want to do that, but I owe you the truth. You realize someday I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to be accountable to tell the truth. Can I just plead with all of you parents and grandparents, please don't tell your children we become angels. If I hear that one more time, I'm just going to go crazy. And I've heard that so many times. People, don't tell your children grandma's an angel. No, no, grandma is not an angel. She's grandma. She's more alive than she's ever been more. She's more beautiful than she's ever been, more, more vital than she's ever been before. Angels are clearly an identity. God has made angels to serve him. We don't become angels. I'm still going to be Mark. You're still going to be you, except we're going to be in glorious splendor. So I, that's a pet peeve of mine, and I don't mean to go too far with that, but please don't tell your children we become angels. I do not know where that comes from. So yeah, we'll know each other in heaven. I didn't intend to preach this message, though, because the more I started thinking about, well, we know people in heaven, there was this thought that began to crystallize in my head. And I began to think about this. There's one person in heaven I'm going to have trouble recognizing. First of all, I'm surprised he's even going to get in. And I can say that because I know him real well. I, I just, I, and I will just tell you right now, this is, this is just me talking, and I'm just speaking my heart. As he is right now, he doesn't belong in heaven. And frankly speaking, if I were God, I wouldn't let him in. I could give God all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't let this guy in heaven. In all the years I've pastored, nobody, and nobody I've ever pastored has given me as much trouble as this one guy. So when I try to think about him in heaven, it's almost more than I can imagine. And some of you chuckling means that you've already guessed who I'm talking about. The person in heaven I'll have the most trouble recognizing is me. I assure you, nobody has given me more trouble in my life than me. And when I think about me in heaven, it's just almost too much to believe. Now, you could be here today and you're saying, Mark, if, you, if you're so bad, what makes you think you're going to heaven? Well, he said I could go. In John chapter 3, these are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. In John chapter 3, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the only reason I know I'm going. The whoever in the world, that's everybody. I'm going to put my name there, but you can put your name here. But I mean, really, this is what the message says. For God so loved Mark that he gave his one and only Son. That if Mark will believe in him, Mark won't perish, but he'll have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn Mark, but to save Mark through Christ, through him. Put your name there. I'm not going to heaven because I'm anything special. I can give God all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't let me in. I'm going because he said I could go. And by the way, I'm not the only person to feel this way. Because Paul, when he wrote in Scripture, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. 
Now you're talking about a guy who wrote 13, maybe 14 books in your New Testament. You're talking about a guy who was perhaps the most influential Christian of all time. And yet Paul said, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one of all. But he said, I love what he said, God have mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could come and use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul said, God saved me just so that people would know God could save anybody. And can I tell you something today in love? If you ever really get close to God, you'll feel like the worst sinner in the world. When we compare ourselves to each other, we can come off looking okay. You really get in the presence of God like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll realize you'll feel like the worst person in the world. Why is that? Why do we struggle to imagine ourselves in heaven? Well, last weekend, I'm going to talk to you about something, and I don't like talking about theology very much because, first of all, I'm not a theologian. And I'm never really good at explaining it, but there are some things that you and I need to be aware of in order to understand the world. And I shared with you last week that when God made our first parents, he made us trichotomies. He made us three-parted beings, body, soul, and spirit. Your body, that's your physical body. That's your physical life. That's your, that's your physical cravings. Your soul is your intellectual life, and your spirit, listen to me from him, your spirit is your apparatus for communication with God. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They died spiritually. They're still alive physically, still alive intellectually, but they died spiritually. Augustine and others have said that there's a God-shaped hole in each of us. There's a, there's a craving for worship. That is that spirit that is within us, even though it may be dead. People will worship movie stars. People worship entertainers. They'll worship sports figures. Sometimes people worship themselves or worship money. But we have that part of us inside that craves to worship. But when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they died spiritually. They lost that apparatus for communication with God. I've always said to you that I hate religion. You need to know I don't mean that I hate the people in religion. Definitely not. I just hate religion for this one particular thing. Religion offers you a substitute for being spiritually alive. Religion says if you jump through these hoops, then you can be accepted. And what happens is when you jump through those hoops, you can look to others like you are spiritually alive when you're not. I hear this all the time at New Spring. Many of you have come here because you've tried religion and it, it hurts you. It cuts you because what happened was you discovered that you could never please, you could never please the religion enough in order to be accepted. And, and here's the worst part. Even when you do get accepted by religion, it, it's not real spiritual life. It just looks like spiritual life. This is a horrible illustration. For one thing, you have to be really old to understand it. And I'm sorry about that. But I just, this is what I think about. When I was 20 years old, I got a brand new Oldsmobile Cutlass Salon. This is a beautiful car. But instantly I did something really ridiculous. It was because there was a craze in those days. Everybody in a car had to have what was called a CB or Citizens Band radio. For all of you who are under 40, that's a prehistoric cell phone. <laughs> it was the dumbest craze, but there were a lot of things in the late 70s that were dumb. But um, there was this craze. Everybody had to have a CB radio. And you always knew who had a CB radio. Because there was an antenna off the deck of, yeah, you had this antenna on your car. And I mean, I'll tell you something. If you didn't have a CB radio, it's like not having internet or a smartphone. So I have this brand new automobile, but I have instantly got to have a CB radio. So I put it in my car. It slides in under my dash. It's a little box with dials on it. Main thing I did, first of all, I put the antenna on the back of the car. And driving around, because you've got to have antenna on the back of your car. 
The other thing, for those of you who can remember cars in the late 70s, the cutlass dash was just such that the only place to put the CB radio was right under the dash as you enter the car on the left side of the steering wheel. And every time I got in the car, I banged my knee on the dumb thing. And I never used it. I wasn't interested in CB radio. I just wanted to look cool. So you know what I did? I just pulled the thing. I pulled the radio out, stuck it in the truck, but I left the antenna on back. I did. I drove around, looked really cool. I think I've told you guys, my first church when I graduated from college was in Houston. And Mary Alice and I were on our way down I-45 to Houston the first time I was going to go speak there. So I'm driving down I-45, and a trucker pulls up next to me, and he's, he's keeping his speed the same as my car. And notice today, he's just like, just staying right there with me. And I wonder, what's going on? All of a sudden, I looked over at him, and he was smiling and waving at me. And I smiled and waved back. We're, that's how we are in Texas. So I smiled way back, and then he reached up, and he pulled up his microphone, and he pointed to it. I don't know what he was driving with at that point, but he pulled up his microphone, and he pointed to me and smiled. He wanted to talk to me. The only problem is I have an antenna on my car. I don't have a radio in my car. And he kept trying to point to it. He's like, he thought I was too slow at first, and he kept pointing, and after a while, he just drove off thinking I was the most stuck-up guy in the world. See... I had the antenna on the deck, but I didn't have any apparatus for communication. I just described some of you in religion. You went through the rules, the catechism, the baptisms. You went through the legalism. You had an antenna on your deck, but you don't have an apparatus for communication with God. This is why five times a week I stand on stage. And I tell you, it's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's about a relationship. Do you have a relationship with God? Because see, here's the thing. When you invite Jesus Christ into your life, your spirit comes alive. And it's real life. It's not religion. It's real life. You truly do know Jesus. But guys, here's the whole point of what I'm trying to bring up today. Because remember, the point of our discussion today is, why is it that we struggle to think about what we're going to be like in heaven? Simply this. When you invite Jesus Christ into your life, your spirit comes alive. But the problem is you still have the old nature inside of you. Let me ask you a question here today. Let's just do an experiment as we think about this. If Jesus Christ were to walk in here today with a, with, a, with a briefcase of contracts, and he would say, as he said, I have a contract for anybody who wants to enter the, enter the contract today. Here is my contract with you. If you sign this contract, I will make sure that you never sin again in this life. For the rest of your life, you, could, you will never sin again. And you don't have to raise your hand. How many of us would be racing to get a pen to sign that contract? Because that is such a wonderful thought. If I could live out the rest of my life and never do one wrong thing again. Well, most of us would do that. But then on the other hand, why is it that we're going to screw something up today spiritually before the day is over? It's because we have this internal conflict, spiritually alive. We want to please God. And yet at the same time, we have this old nature that has cravings that pull us away from that. Let me read that to you out of scripture so you'll know I'm not making this up. In Galatians 5, verse 17, the Bible says, For the sinful nature, that's the nature we inherited from Adam and Eve, the sinful nature craves what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. You understand? The Bible is saying even though we want to do what's right and we don't want to sin, we still have cravings within that pull us away from that. My favorite text, and this is a little long, so bear with it, although I think you'll enjoy it. My favorite scripture is when Paul, the guy we read about a few moments ago, when he talks about his old nature and the spirit inside of him. Listen to what he said. 
I really don't understand myself. That is so comforting to know that maybe the greatest person who lived outside of Jesus Christ said, I don't understand myself. How many of us soul brothers and soul sisters would say, put my name down there with yours, Paul. I don't understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin still living in me that does it. See, this is the thing. Paul's not saying he's not responsible for what he does. He's just saying what I'm saying when I say I'm going to have a hard time recognizing myself in heaven. He's basically saying, I don't know where the fabric of me stops and the fabric of sin in my life begins because it's all woven together. Basically, what Paul is saying is I'm struggling because I'm beginning to identify myself by the things I do wrong. Now, let's read on. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I invariably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And I'm thankful he gives the answer. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is why I talked to you about last week. You're going to have to undergo a change either through death or through the coming of the Lord because we have to get rid of this old nature. That's what death is about. And we will. So what will we be like when we're in heaven? Can I give you my favorite verse on this subject? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John writes this. Dear friends, now are we the children of God. I don't know about you, but that settles in on me like a warm blanket in a cold day. Because what he's saying is, right now, flawed though we are, wrestling with the old nature, broken, all kinds of stuff in our lives that we don't like, right now we are God's children. It's not like we have to wait till we get to the end of our lives and God is saying, I don't know, should she be one of my children or not? No. John says, now. In our situation right now, flawed and crazy though it is, right now we're God's children. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know when he appears. We shall be like him, but we will see him as he is. I don't know what I'm going to be like when I get to heaven, but that's all I need to know right there. I am going to be like, listen, Jesus. Like Jesus. I like, uh, I like the way that the Amplified Version has this. It says that we will resemble and be like him. You know what it's like when a child resembles a parent or siblings resemble each other? I think about this. I'm God's child right now, but if you caught me on certain days, I wouldn't resemble him very much. But when I'm in heaven, I am going to resemble, and I'm going to be like Jesus. Me like Jesus. That's so hard to imagine. In the few minutes that we have left here today, I want to go on a journey. And forgive me, please, this is a personal journey. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to stimulate you to take the same journey while I take this journey. I want you to imagine for a few moments what you're going to be like in heaven. It's hard for me. I mean, I have to think about this. How will I know me without anxiety? 
I've never lied to you. Anxiety is my biggest issue. It's both the weight that weighs me down and the sin that so easily besets me. I live with fear every day. I get up in the morning and think, what do I need to worry about today? And if I can't think of anything, I will before long. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you do. I just try to think about, what will, how will I know Mark if he doesn't have anxiety? It's almost as if that's, a, that's an identifying mark for me. How will I know me without anxiety? How will I know me without pain or fatigue? Some of you deal with chronic pain. In Revelation 21, the Bible says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. How will I know me without scars? I loved sports when I was growing up, but whatever I played, I got hurt. If I'd played chess, I'd have gotten carpal tunnel, I promise you. <laughs> I don't have an anterior cruciate ligament in this left knee. I broke this leg. I've broken this arm. I've got all kinds of scars on me. The biggest one, when I was 12 years old, I was just, you know, I was just hitting some golf balls in my front yard. My next-door neighbor came over. He's a younger kid. He asked if he could swing my club. I handed him my nine iron instead of a golf swing. He swung it around like this. Caught me on the side of the face, crushed my cheekbone, and damaged my left eye. From the time I've been 12 years old, I don't know what it's like to look out of my left eye and not see blur. That's why my words are so big on my notes. I bet you have scars like that, too. I bet you have injuries and scars. Isn't it strange how something can happen to you in just a moment and change your life forever? You know what's strange about scar tissue, isn't it? Scar tissue is something that God has given us. As I guess it, certainly it's a gift because when you have an open wound, then your body, send, your body makes tissue. It's not as good as the original tissue, but it's tissue that protects the wound. But then after a while, the scar tissue itself can become a problem, can't it? You need to know now I'm not talking about physical scars. I'm talking about emotional scars because isn't it true that there are things that happen in your life to you emotionally and your soul creates scar tissue? It's not healthy like you were before it happened. It allows you to get through. But the scars are there. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in heaven not to have the memory of that thing that hurts you so much or that loss or that failure? And to be healed from that forever. Imagine being in heaven without scars. Imagine, for me, it's a challenge to think about being in heaven without guilt. Or without weak areas. I'm trying to imagine being in heaven without a sense of time getting away from me. I'm 58 years old. That pretty much governs my life at this point. Because I'm busier than I've ever been in my life. And yet I realize time is getting away from me. I'm, I'm always in a hurry. I mean, just to imagine myself with time, that would be something amazing. And I'm just kind of opening my heart because I want you to think about this too in your life. I don't know what you fear. I don't know what, I don't know what troubles you. You know what I look forward very much to in heaven? There's something about me that I, I hate probably more than anything else. I hate disappointing people. I'm never happy with a sermon. I'll preach five times and I'll feel like I've let you down. I hate disappointing my wife. I hate disappointing my kids. I hate disappointing God. I don't even like disappointing myself. But to imagine being in heaven and never fear disappointing anyone again. What will I be like when I'm like Jesus? What will you be like when you're like Jesus? I don't know if we'll be able to recognize ourselves and do one thing. We're going to have a great time. 
Because here's the thing, you're going to like people in heaven didn't even like on the earth. Some of you are like family members. You just never, never could stand on the earth. When you both like Jesus, you'll be okay. It's good to know with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, isn't it? <laughs> what, will we be, what will we be like when we're like Jesus? That's an awesome thought. That's a quirky way for me to finish the series, but it just was on my mind. And here's the thing I want to ask you. I want to ask you this. Are you going? Guys, to be honest with you, there were new springers who started this journey with us four weeks ago who are already in eternity. I've heard a number of stories of people who were greatly touched by the messages and right after that slipped into eternity. Are you going? Hey, it's not enough to have religion antenna on your deck. Do you have a relationship with God? He said you could. You say, well, Mark, I'm not sure I'm good enough. Well, I know you and I both are not. Let's let go of that. He said we could go. He said you and I could go. He says whoever. And if you don't have that settled in your heart and life, you need to settle it right now. I mean, give up on religion. Give up on trying to be a good person. Give up on trying to figure this out on your own. Just come and accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There's a reason why we elevate the cross. The highest symbol on this property is a cross. Why? I mean, think about that. That's a place of execution. We elevate the cross because on the cross, Jesus Christ did for us what we can't do for ourselves. He laid his perfect life on a Roman cross, and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for our souls so that people like you and me who don't deserve to go to heaven can walk in and be like Jesus. And he said it's a gift, and all you have to do is ask. I'm going to close this service with a prayer. These aren't magic words, but the important thing is what you mean. So I'm going to pray it slowly because you've got to decide if you want to tell God what this prayer has to say. But if you do, there's a God who loves you listening on the other end. Let's pray together. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken past repair. But I believe you love me. And you said I could go to heaven. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I want him to be my savior and my Lord. I turn from my old life and my old way of thinking. I receive Jesus. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer, we're not nearly as crowded as we normally are because of snow. So this will be easier day than ever. I have a gift I want to give you if you just prayed that prayer, a DVD and a little book I wrote that answers a whole lot of questions about how you can be sure you're going to heaven. Also, a coupon for a new Bible. If you just pray for me, all you got to do is take your Talk to Us card and say, I pray with Mark, take it to guest services. It's right out in the lobby to your right, and there's a little one back by the coffee shop. Guys, next week we start... The series of series. It's called Six Life-Changing Lessons from Christmas Carol. Next week, as mankind was my business, we will go all the way to Christmas Eve. I promise you. There are people who will come for Christmas who will come for no other time. You'll want to invite your friends to this series. I promise you. It's going to be extraordinary. I can't wait for you to see the stage and then bring the message, Mankind was my business. That's next weekend. God bless. Be safe out there.